0: You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au So what's the first image that comes to mind when I mention the devil to you? What do you think of first? What do you picture? Do you immediately think of a cartoon character? A fat little baby wearing a nappy? Red skin, horns, a pointy tail carrying a trident Or maybe an image from medieval art The red skin is now scaly And he now has claws and goat's horns And maybe even the body of a goat He's dark and menacing and disturbing Or maybe you don't picture the devil specifically Or instead uh, think of scenes from a movie like The Exorcist Bizarre and uncontrollable and Frankly, terrifying. There's so many images and ideas of the devil nowadays, thanks to art and cinema and novels, but very few and probably actually none of them reflect anything like the reality of who the devil actually is. When Mel Gibson produced the movie a number of years ago, The Passion of the Christ, he cast a woman in the role of the devil. It's an interesting idea, I think, but I think it was also effective. There was a sort of a benign attractiveness in his portrayal, or her portrayal of the devil, maybe I should say. But there was also a brooding sense of evil. Rarely, to my recollection, was the devil front and centre in any scene. Rather, he slash she was always slinking around in the background, half hidden and often unnoticed. To my mind, Gibson probably captured more of the sense of the Alluring malevolence of the devil than any other image I've seen. But ultimately, all of these images of the devil are caricatures, attempts to portray his characteristics that fall far short of the reality. And they lead us into several errors in our thinking about the devil, and all of these errors are dangerous. Before we can begin to look at who the devil is according to Scripture, Let's consider the dangers of the wrong ideas about the devil The first one, of course, is pretty obvious If he's the fat little baby of the cartoons he's, uh, he's an amusing figure, he's harmless He may even be likeable There's a sense of innocence and fun beneath that funny appearance He's certainly not threatening or dangerous And at worst, he may be someone to be mocked and laughed at At the other extreme, of course, is the exorcist image the devil is powerful, vicious, hateful, destructive. He's the epitome of malevolent evil. And that much is actually true. But it also carries the thought that the devil can act with impunity. He can harm whoever he likes, whenever he likes. And the thought that he is an all-powerful, ever-present being to be feared, and so far powerful that no one can defeat him. There are at least some portions, some nuggets of truth in this, but as we'll see, there's an awful lot of error in it as well. In between these two extremes are a couple of mistakes that uh, we often make when we think about the devil, and by we I mean not just Christians, but non-Christians as well. We may imagine him to be an impotent being, powerless, and therefore to be ignored, or Probably the most common and most popular belief about the devil today, and even amongst a lot of Christians, is that he doesn't exist at all. Therefore, we take no notice of him at all. All of these are dangerous perspectives. All of them will leave you open to destruction in some form. Before we go on, let's have a look at our text today. We're in John chapter 8, and we'll be picking up from verse 38, if you'd like to open your Bibles. And Jesus speaking in verse 38 says I speak of what I have seen with my father And you do what you have heard from your father They answered him Abraham is our father Jesus said to them if you were Abraham's children You would be doing the works Abraham did But now you seek to kill me A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God This is not what Abraham did You're doing the works your father did They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now that was a real slap in the face for the Jews. They were the chosen race, chosen by God himself. They were proud descendants of Abraham. And yet Jesus tells them, you are of your father, the devil. And the evidence that Jesus presents is that you do what you heard from your father. You are liars and you are murderers, just like your father the devil. And you refuse to receive me, the one sent by God, the one Abraham looked to for salvation. So the question, of course, is where did this lying and murderous being come from? And what's his origin and his nature? The Bible doesn't tell us clearly where he came from. He just appears in the form of a serpent on the earliest pages of the Bible But immediately he reveals his nature And he reveals his method of attack And that is to sow seeds of doubt about God About whether God can be trusted And he does it by questioning God, what God said And then by flatly accusing God of lying But the serpent's lies were attractive enough That Adam and Eve believed him instead of God And that led to the first human sin And also to the consequence that God promised Death Now that's why Jesus called the devil A liar and a murderer It's how he started his work On this planet Now where the devil came from and how he got that way Is not stated explicitly in scripture The closest we get are a couple of passages that speak to a human king. But they seem to speak beyond a human king as well. Ezekiel 28, for example, tells us, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now that's pretty high praise for a mere mortal, but the ancients were known for their hyperbole, for exaggerating their praise of the king. But then the text goes on to say in verse 13 of Ezekiel 28, that you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On that day, you were created. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. It's difficult to see how. Those sorts of things could be said about a mere human Whether he's a king or otherwise Now Isaiah adds to the intrigue when he writes Speaking to the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14:12, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn How you are cut to the ground, you who laid the nations low You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now again, this might just be hyperbole, or it may be something the Bible often does in prophetic passages. It speaks initially to a human being or to a current situation, but with application to a higher being, Or a future situation The Bible's full of that sort of stuff Particularly in the Old Testament prophets Now if these passages are speaking of the devil And that's by no means certain Then it seems that the devil was a powerful angelic being The leader even of an angelic troop He was intelligent, perfect in wisdom And he was beautiful But he came proud and jealous and ambitious He wanted to take the place of God He wanted to be worshipped and to rule over creation, not unlike the deal he tried to make with Jesus. But pride goes before a fall, Scripture tells us, and boy, did the devil fall. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, Jesus told his followers at one point. So what we can say for sure about the devil is that he is a created being, apparently created somewhere between the creation of the universe and the creation of mankind. He was somehow seduced by his own beauty and power and wanted to be elevated above his already high station. And we could deduce that he saw his opportunity to seize control when Adam and Eve were created. From that day forward, the devil has operated in opposition to God with the intent of undermining and destroying everything that god has created the bible refers to the devil using many different names and descriptions all of which shed light on his nature his intention and his methods the first one obviously is the devil matthew 4 1 refers to him that way and many many times in scripture particularly in the gospels it's referred to he's referred to as the devil it's a A a word translated from the Greek diabolos, which means slanderer. He is one who makes false reports about another. He is also referred to quite commonly as Satan. Satan is a Hebrew word that means accuser. The first way he appears in scripture, of course, is as the serpent. He's is referred to that a few times in Genesis 3 and also Revelation 12. It suggests a menacing, poisonous creature ready to strike without warning. It's sometimes called Beelzebul or Beelzebub, or in some of the Old Testament translations, Baalzebul. It's a strange name to our ears, but it's one that means Lord of the Flies or Lord of Dung. The Bible sometimes calls him a dragon, a powerful, fierce, and fearsome creature. Dangerous, difficult to control. Always at risk of uh, consuming him with your, his flames. Consuming you with his flames. The Bible sometimes calls him the evil one. It speaks of evil, particularly in the moral or spiritual sense. An evil that intends to corrupt others. It's malevolent and malignant. He's also called an adversary. He's opposed to anyone who belongs to God. John twelve calls him the ruler of this world. It's a title that speaks of his effectiveness, the effectiveness of his strategy. He has corrupted and controlled the whole world with his lies and deceptions. And many Christians worry about the supposed one world government to come. But friends, I've got news for you. It's already here. It's been here. For thousands of years It's just less obvious Than a political power It's much more subtle And the devil Is the ruler of it He's the prince of the power of the air It tells us in Ephesians 2 it tells us something about the spiritual world He inhabits And the world he has some control over He doesn't have total control I need to stress that He doesn't have total control But he certainly does have some He is also the deceiver of the whole world His influence and his effectiveness Have always been through deception It's how he began his work It's how he continues his work And it's how he will operate Until the last day Hence the importance Of knowing truth As we heard Jesus say a few weeks ago If you abide in my word You are truly my disciples And you will know the truth And the truth will set you free. Now we could talk for ages about each one of these descriptions of the devil, but you get the point. The devil is an enemy of everything. Everything good that God has created. He is an enemy of God, an enemy of God's people, and an enemy of humanity made in God's image. Now all that, of course, means that the cartoon image of the devil is woefully misguided. And it's dangerous. If we fail to take the devil seriously, or if we fail to recognize that he is real and a really malignant being, we're left without any defenses against him. There's several things that seem pretty clear from scripture about the devil. Firstly, he is a spiritual being. He's not restricted by physical things. He can go through walls as if they don't exist. The uh, tradition that some Nationalities have of uh, Not having a door that leads directly To their front door A path, sorry, that leads directly to their front door So that the demons don't come in Is rubbish Doors and walls and physical things Are no barrier To the devil To spiritual beings Physical distance doesn't seem to be a problem for him He could be in Melbourne today And in London In an instant He has no physical body But it seems from what we see in scripture that he craves a physical manifestation. He entered into Judas to do his most despicable work. And you remember when uh, Jesus was kicking demons out of the Gadarene man, the demons begged to be allowed to enter the pigs. It strikes me that because they are spiritual beings without physical form, they have a desire to inhabit a physical body. The devil's a fallen being. He's no longer the perfect, beautiful creature that he once was. He's now sinful and rebellious. He's a powerful being. He rules over hordes of other angels, that are often referred to as demons in scripture. Angels who followed him in his rebellion against God. And as we just heard, the whole world is under his sway. He's an intelligent being. He knows the Bible well enough to know how to twist it for his own ends. And he knows that his days are numbered. Remember those same demons that were tormenting the Gadarene man when Jesus arrived, cried out, Have you come here to torment us before our time? He knows his days are numbered. He may not be able to read our minds, but he's certainly able to read our cues. He's been observing Humans and human nature and responses and reactions for thousands of years. He can read our cues. He is a malicious being. He roars like a lion seeking those who he may devour. And he is relentless in his attack on God's creation. He is an influential being. He may be able to inject. Thoughts into our minds Have you ever wondered where those Horrible or disgusting thoughts Come from that seem to come from nowhere They're not ones You'd think of by yourself He may be able to inject thoughts into our mind Why do I say that Somehow he incited David To take a census And as a consequence the people of Israel And David got punished How did he incite David To take a census He's a created being. He's not able to be in two places at the same time. He may be able to move very quickly between places, but he can't be in Melbourne and he can't be in London at the same time. He's a created being. Therefore, it's highly unlikely that you or I have ever been attacked by the devil. It might feel like it sometimes, but I suspect he has bigger fish to fry than to pester us little Christians. No doubt, though, you have been attacked by members of his demonic army. He's a restricted being. The only things he is allowed to do is what God allows him to do, and not a single thing beyond that. If you don't believe that, read the start of the book of Job. The devil had to ask permission to torment Job and was only permitted to do What God allowed him to do. Those restrictions still apply to the devil. He can do nothing to you beyond what God allows him to do. I'm convinced that that's part of the reason why he is so enraged in this age. He is restricted in precisely all the areas he wants to lash out and wreak destruction. We would do well to take the devil seriously. To be mindful that he is a powerful and a dangerous being. Almost all the things we learn about the devil apply also to the legions of demons that work with him and follow him. The devil's goal, as Jesus might have put it in John chapter 10, is to steal and kill and destroy. And the primary method he does that is deception. Once the devil has convinced you that God can't be trusted, or maybe even that God doesn't even exist, then he has you right where he wants you. For if there's no loving or trustworthy God, you will no longer seek to find your meaning and purpose in God. Instead, you'll begin to live for yourself. Eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You'll try to find your meaning and your pleasure and your purpose in other things, in worldly things, none of which are able to satisfy. Now the devil's strategy is first seen in his conversation with Eve in the garden. Genesis 3.6 it tells us, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now the Apostle John describes that exchange like this in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, that's the good for food part in the garden, and the desires of eyes of the eyes, that's a delight to the eyes, and the pride of life to make one wise, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's always been the devil's strategy to appeal to our appetites or our desire for pleasure or to our pride. He's a master at it. He has long experience at it. He's been, as I said, observing mankind for thousands of years. He has a pretty good idea of what makes us tick. Of what are our weak points. You know the devil used much the same strategy on Jesus when he tempted him in the wilderness. He may be cunning but he's not very original. Jesus after fasting alone for 40 days was hungry not surprisingly. So the devil's first attack was to appeal to his physical appetite. If you are the son of God command this stone to become bread. Why wait any longer, Jesus? You're hungry, you're the Son of God. Just turn these stones into bread and satisfy your appetite. But Jesus, as we know, responded with the word of God. Good strategy for us too. It is written, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. Now when that approach failed, of course, the devil tried the desire of the eyes attack. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He offered it all to Jesus, without any need to suffer, without any cost, if only Jesus would bow before him. And again, Jesus responded with scripture. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So finally, he appealed to to Jesus' pride. If you are the Son of God as if Jesus had any doubt that he was the Son of God. But if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. You're so important, Jesus, that I will guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Scripture again was Jesus' defence, all the defence he needed. It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And after all this, Luke reports that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He sat back, he bided his time. Have you ever read somewhere, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you? It's precisely what Jesus did. He overcame the temptation of the devil. By resisting him and submitting to God. And that's always our best defence too. Now it's enlightening to note that when the devil tempted Jesus, he didn't do it without right lies. He used truth. He used the scripture. But he put a subtle twist on it. That's his preferred strategy. Whether he's attacking someone directly, or whether he's using others and even humans to do his dirty work. And he has no shortage of volunteers to do the work for him. Even in Christian churches. When the Apostle Paul warned the Corinthian church about fossil, false apostles. He called them deceitful working workmen. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And he explains in the very next word, uh, verse why they do that. It's because their example Is the devil himself? Paul writes, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of unrighteousness. It's a very effective strategy, especially among Christians. Take a verse of or passage of Scripture and just put a little twist on it. Take it out of context. And you can make it say almost anything you want it to say. And by these means, the truth becomes a lie. Be warned, we need to know our Bibles. Not just our favourite bits, not just our memory verses. We need the whole counsel of God. The Word of God is a solid foundation for us to stand on when we're under attack. It's a shield a sword, a fortress for us. It's both the means of our defence and a weapon for attack. The Bible reveals the enemy's strategy to us and also reveals the means of our victory. It's why Paul told the Corinthians that we are not ignorant of his schemes. Sadly today, too many Christians are ignorant of the devil's schemes. And as a a result, they are ignorant of the solution to their problem as well. Because they don't know God's word. And consequently, they are left woefully defenceless and unprotected. We're wise to be wary of the devil and his schemes. And we are wise to resist him at every turn. But as Christians, we no longer need to fear him. He's still a powerful being as I said and his power is still in lies and deceptions which means we also have the tools to defeat him in our lives. The most important and the most effective tool of course is to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Without that relationship with Jesus we have no defences at all. We have nothing to resist or to fight the devil with. But once we have done that Once we have put our trust in Jesus Christ There are plenty more tools that we can use But the effectiveness of those tools Begins with believing God's word If we don't believe it Or if we're half-hearted and dismissive of it We're stepping into a gunfight armed with a leather sleeve We have no defences If Jesus used God's word for his defence, doesn't that suggest that we might need to use it as well? Of course, there's also the armour of God as revealed to us in Ephesians chapter 2. We need this armour because, as it says there in in verse 12 of of Ephesians 2, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the world powers of this darkness Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens The weapons as I'm sure you know are the belt of truth The breastplate of righteousness The shoes of the gospel of peace The shield of faith The helmet of salvation The sword of the spirit which is the word of God And prayer in the spirit Now I won't go into those today we covered them in our series through the book of Ephesians at the start of last year. If you want to catch up on that, it's available on our podcast or website. The Apostle John wrote, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Before becoming Christians, to sin was our natural state, and we were, for the most part, happy with it, and happy to continue in it. That's because in our natural state, we show a family resemblance to our father, the devil. But you know that's not where the story ends. There's one more thing we need to know about the devil. He is a defeated foe. To be sure, he hasn't given up the battle yet, but he knows his end is certain. In the meantime, he intends to cause as much damage as he can. But as John also wrote, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And he did. In a twist I don't think the devil saw coming. The devil finally succeeded in getting Jesus killed. But his success was his downfall. For in dying Jesus paid the penalty that was due to us those who had been firmly and happily planted in the devil's camp, and those who had the devil's claws so firmly dug into them that there was no escape. By this, by his death, Jesus opened the door for us to be reconciled back to his heavenly Father. And now, because of his death on our behalf, all who put their faith In Jesus Christ, all who put their faith in Jesus Christ are plucked out of the devil's camp. They are lost to the devil forever. The very act of crucifixion was also the victory blow against the devil and it sealed his fate. Finally, there was someone who successfully resisted the devil's lies and his seduction. In living a sinless life and dying an unjust death, Jesus defeated his enemy and our enemy. Now it's only a matter of time before the devil and his hordes face their final judgment and are banished to the place prepared for them, the lake of fire. Yes, the devil is a powerful and a fearsome being. But thanks be to God in Christ Jesus He is a defeated enemy, and we have nothing to fear from him. Romans 8.31 tells us, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Certainly not the devil anymore. Or even the devil? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life. Nor angels nor rulers. Not even the devil. Nor things present nor things to come. Nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have a, an evil and relentless enemy, but thanks be To God through your son Jesus Christ That he is a defeated enemy Lord we long for that day When all the mopping up battles are completed And when we see you face to face When the devil and his hordes And his followers are cast into that lake of fire Lord when we are Finally set free forever from the death, the destruction, the misery that he causes while this earth still exists we long for that day Lord with creation we groan for that day that final day of reconciliation when we're not just reconciled in spirit to the Father but physically as well with our new bodies in the new heavens and the new earth Lord, we look forward to that, day. In the meantime, Holy Spirit, would you work in us to root out, to burn out every stronghold, every foothold, every claw that the enemy has in us, the devil and his his minions, his horde. Would you burn those things out of us, Lord, by your word, by your spirit, Would you shape us daily more into the image of Jesus Christ? Lord, we, we pray that the eyes of those that have been blinded by the devil to the gospel truth would be opened. Lord, would you open eyes everywhere. Our friends, our neighbours, our workmates right across this nation, line? Would you open Eyes to The reality of the devil The Continual Evil That he brings Would you open eyes to the The uh, falseness of the attractiveness of the devil And show What is really underneath that Glittering exterior Would you cause people to Fear Him such that they turn to you for salvation. Lord, we pray for all Christians everywhere, Lord, that maybe are under attack from the devil and his demonic armies. Pray, Lord, that you'll open their eyes to the truth of Scripture, to the deception that the devil is bringing, even in churches, Lord. The deception, the lies, are in there, Lord. Would you open eyes to that? Would you protect Christians everywhere, Lord, from deception? Lord, we pray that they will know the truth, that we will know the truth, and the truth will set us all free. And Lord, we pray for a quick coming of that day when you have destroyed the works of the devil entirely and he is no longer a threat to any of us we pray these in your name Jesus, mighty son of God, all powerful son of God, ruler of all creation and we worship you Lord Thank you for the work that you have done in us. The work that you continue to do in us. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au